If you would, take out your Bible and turn over to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 29. While you are finding your spot, I just want you to know that this portion of Scripture, God has laid this on my heart as my desire for ministry this year, my desire for our youth group this year, and I hope that it will be your desire as well as we reach out and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those that are around us. So if you found your place, Colossians chapter 1 and looking at verses 28 and 29. The Bible says, starting in verse 28, "...whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus." Whereunto I also labor, striving according to His working, which worketh in me mightily. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank You, Lord, for this day that You've given us. We thank You for the privilege to be able to open up Your Word. And God, how it speaks to our hearts, speaks to our lives. And God, I pray that our minds would be opened, our hearts would be opened to what You have for us uh, through this Scripture, Lord. God, we thank You and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. How many of you remember the Energizer Bunny? He used to pop up all the time in commercials, and he still occasionally does. The spots will start out like ads for something other than batteries until that needle-scratch moment when the pink bunny enters, pounding that big drum while the voiceover man extols the Energizer battery company. It, the Energizer batteries, they are said to keep what? To keep going and going and going. That is their slogan. That Their batteries are not going to quit, but they are going to get the job done. I believe that the Apostle Paul could have applied that same slogan to his life. He just kept going and going and going. There was no quit in him. He said in verse 29, I labor striving according to his working which worketh in me mightily. Look at the terms that he used to describe his actions. Labor meant to work unto the point of exhaustion. It meant to work so hard that it left you so weary that you felt as if you had taken a beating. Some of you younger ones don't understand this feeling yet, but you will one day. When I was a teenager, I worked at my family's greenhouses. I was always doing different things in, within the greenhouse. We, we dug ditches by hand. We, took and we built tables with inside the greenhouse. We, we put uh, cement down to make pathways. I'd crawl underneath the tables and put dripper systems or water systems in, in to water the plants. I'd oftentimes carry in potting soil and I was able to take two 50-pound bags of potting soil on each shoulder and be able to carry it inside, inside to those that were potting up plants. Now, being able to do all that it doesn't amaze me. What amazes me the most now is that I was able to do it and not feel the effects of it the next day. Now, now that I'm getting a little bit older, I find that if I work hard one day, if I work outside, I feel the effects of it the next day. I go to get out of bed and it feels like every muscle in my body is mad at me. Now, you adults, you know what I'm talking about. 
muscles that you don't know that you have, they're, they're hurting. You feel like you have taken a beating. Now that's how hard Paul labored. He worked until he was worn out, and then the next day when his body said, stay in bed, Paul did not listen. He kept going and going and going. There have been men throughout history that have labored for the Lord, but they just kept going and going. Some that, that fell asleep, you know, praying. They, they got into the bed and they said, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. And then they fell asleep. John Wesley, he would go and he would travel 60, 70 miles and he would preach three times a, a day. And he would labor for the Lord. He just kept going and going and going. Paul also described his work as, as striving. That, that's a stronger term than labor. It is the Greek word that we use to derive our English word agony from. It was the word used to describe someone agonizing in an athletic event or in a fight. One of my favorite movie franchises is the, the Rocky movies. I love to watch the Italian stallion because he is always the underdog. Even when he is a champion, there was always someone that would arrive on the scene who was more athletic, more fit, was able to throw a, a punch and land it with more force than Rocky could. You knew though at the beginning of every movie that although he was the underdog, he was going to somehow pull it out in the end. It was predictable, but you wanted to watch it anyway. You wanted to see how he'd done it. Usually happened like this. He would get into the fight and the more fit, the more athletic competitor would begin to pound on Rocky. He'd go several rounds and, and this competitor would just beat him into a pulp. He'd go into the corner and it looked like he was in agony. He was tired. He was worn out. His eyes would be swelled up. He'd say, cut me, Mick, cut me. Mickey or whoever was in his corner would say, come on, you got to keep going. You got to keep fighting, keep fighting. Lay it to them. Some way, somehow, in the, the later rounds, the, the last round, Rocky would find some new strength and he would start beating on that opponent. You would hear that theme music begin to play that dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun, and he would take over the match and he would beat that opponent. Let me say that we as Christians, we have an enemy today. We have an opponent that likes to get his jabs in, especially if we seek to do something for the Lord. He will fight tooth and nail to get you to stop. He will send temptations. He will send situations, hardships to try to get you to quit. These things will wear you down to where you feel sometimes like giving up and like you're in a fight. But these are simply blows from a defeated enemy. At the cross of Calvary, Satan thought that he had landed the death blow. He thought that he had won. But on that third and glorious day, Jesus delivered a haymaker to our enemy Satan. He defeated Satan and is our victorious Savior. And now those who are saved have the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave available unto us. It is available so that we may live for Him and carry out the work that God has given to us. Paul said, striving according to His working, which He worketh in me mightily. 
We cannot do the work that God has called us unto in our own mind. Paul understood this. He wrote to the Corinthians, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meant to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. We must understand that God has called us unto a work and He expects us to accomplish this work, yet not in our own strength. Rather, we are to rely on Him provi providing that grace to us, that strength to us to do the work that He has called us to. We must look to Him for His resources. You see, as a believer, you're not alone in this journey. You have Him. You have Him providing what you need. You have Him to walk with you. He said, go. And He said, lo, I will be with you as you go and to do the work that I have called you to. You're not alone. You've got Him. But let me also say that you've got others. Paul said, whom we preach in the Scripture. In the context of this letter, Paul is most likely speaking of Timothy, who he has already mentioned and Epaphras, who he will mention later. They were co-laborers, working together to get the gospel message out. Young people, when you enter into that elementary school, that middle school, or that high school, it may seem like there is hardly no one with you. It may seem as if everyone is living for themselves, that no one wants to follow God. The prophet Elijah felt this way one day as well. He was depressed. The wicked queen Jezebel had promised that she was going to see to it that Elijah's life be taken. Distressed by the news, he goes into the wilderness and he sits down under a juniper tree and there asks God to take his life. However, at this time, God began to speak unto Elijah. He said, Elijah, why are you here? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They had walked away from God, is what he was saying. Thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. God told Elijah after he had had his so-called pity party, to stand up and to, to go unto a mountain. And when he did, the Lord passed by that mountain. The ground began to, to shake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, is what the Scripture says. There was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, there was a still, small voice. Again, the Lord asked, Why are you here, Elijah? Elijah once again began to pour out his heart. He said, Lord, I... I feel all alone. I feel like everyone has left you and there is no one following after you and I am the only one serving you. But listen to what the Lord said to him. He said, Elijah, you may feel like that. You may feel like there is no one with you. You may feel like you're all alone. But Elijah, let me tell you this. I have left 7,000 in Israel which have not bowed the knee under the false god Baal. There may be times that you feel all alone. 
You may feel like an outcast. There may be even, even be people that will try to, to get you to quit as well, telling you that you need to set aside your beliefs because they're extreme or they're ignorant. However, don't you quit. You keep going and going and going because there are like-minded people that are there with you. You find them and you begin to work together at your school proclaiming the gospel. You begin to look around and see those individuals that have not sold out, that love the Lord, and you get together and you begin to work and you do it in the Lord's power and watch what God can do through you. You may not be many in numbers, but God is able to take the small. He's able to take the few. He's able to take the ordinary and do something extraordinary. God took an army, an army under the leadership of Gideon, and He took them and shrunk them down to just 300 men, and He was able to defeat a great army. He used two, Esther and Mordecai, to save His people from the wicked plot of Haman, a plot that sought to kill them. He used twelve, one of which would betray him, a bunch of, of nobodies, but yet he used them to turn the world upside down. And he will use you and others in your elementary, in your middle, and in your high schools, or even in your college, wherever to make a difference. If you will just link together and be sold out for the Lord and do what He has called you to do, working in His power, He can do great things through you. How are you going to make this difference though? It's very simple, by proclaiming Him. Paul says in verse 28, Whom we preach. I like how the New King James reads of this verse. It reads, Him we preach. We are not to preach our opinions. We are not to preach our traditions. Where those may get a lot of amens. They might get a lot of applause. They might get a lot of shouts. That's not the message that we're called to proclaim. Although I believe that Christians ought to be involved politically, we're not called to proclaim the platform of a political party. Rather, we are called to proclaim the message of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And He has got one message, a central message that He has given to His church that we are to take outside of these walls to a lost and dying world. A message that says that God, being born of a virgin, came into this world. He lived a sinless life. A life that took Him to the cross of Calvary to where He died. He was buried and on that third day He was resurrected. Through that act of love, salvation is available to all men. To whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I love what George Whitfield said. He said, other men may preach the gospel better than I, but no man will preach a better gospel. It's about Him. There is no other name under heaven in which man must be saved but the precious name of Jesus Christ. Him dying, resurrected, bringing salvation unto this world. That is the message. That is the message that we are to take out into this world. We are to take this message so that we may, first of all, caution everybody. Paul uses the word warning. It's a word that means to lovingly lay a message on the heart and mind of another so as to affect the intellect, the will, and the emotion of that person. The path on which 
Many of our family, friends, and those that we go to school with or work with is a path that leads to destruction. Jesus had warned those who had gathered to, to hear Him and at the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Enter ye at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. There are so many that are just carefree. They're running down this path that, that leads to destruction. They, they don't even see it. They're, they're blind. Satan has blinded their minds to where they do not see spiritual truth. And they feel like they have no hope. Why is there so many of your peers that, that are walking around with marks on their arm where they've, they've been cutting themselves? They, they need a release. They, 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 they think that they can find it through, through that, through hurting themselves. And many even go even further in, in taking their own lives. Why is the suicide rate among teenagers at the highest levels it is, ever has been? We have taught for so long in our schools that you're, you're just here by chance. That you're, you're just here because uh, some, some, some chemicals or, or something happened in, in time past over millions of years and you're, you're just here by, by chance. You have no purpose. You don't have no reason to be here. You, you have no future. But we as Christians, we know that that kind of thinking, it leads to destruction. And ultimately, if, if people continue to believe that they're here just by chance, that there is no hope of an afterlife, there is no hope in Jesus Christ, and ultimately, it's going to lead them to hell. I wouldn't want my family, my friends, or even my worst enemy to spend one moment in hell, much less eternity. If we know that that is their end, what does it say about us if we fail to warn them? I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon, in which he said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. If I were to ask you, what would you be willing to do to, so that a family member or a friend wouldn't spend a time eternity in that, what would you be willing to do to stop them from, from going to hell? I know that salvation is the Lord, it's the Holy Spirit working in the hearts, but He has called us to do our parts. So what sacrifice would you be willing to make? Paul said in Romans, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul had a burden. He was willing to sacrifice it all, even his own soul, so that people would come to Christ. How about you? To be real honest with you, we're not willing to even sacrifice a few minutes. When was the last time that you blocked off a part of your schedule so that you could intentionally go and witness to someone that you knew was lost? 
to build that relationship with them? When was the last time that you, that you really prayed? I mean, really prayed. Not one of these simply save him or, or save her, but you were really, truly heartbroken before the Lord because you knew that somebody was lost. I want the heart of our Lord. The heart of when He looked over Jerusalem, He began to weep because they were lost. They hadn't come to Him. I want that type of heart for my own life. Don't always have it. Don't, don't, I, I don't think I've even touched it yet. But that's my desire, and I hope that's your desire, to have a burden for those who are lost. We must caution everybody so that we may see them come into salvation. But our job is not complete yet. Whereas many believe that the moment of salvation is the finish line, it's actually the starting point. A place in which we begin to teach or to coach young believers. Young believers need someone to come alongside them, to mentor them, and to teach them the truths of the Word of God. When we fail to do so, we have immature Christians who Paul referred to in Ephesians as being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. They hear something, they, they like it, and they are not doctrinally sound, so they accept it. We have a bunch of Christians who have their own brand of Christianity, and it's not biblical Christianity. Then we wonder why it's hard to tell the difference between the church and the world. We must take young Christians and teach them the doctrines, the Christian truths that are in God's Word. We need to teach them the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, how to pray, how to study their Bible so that they may grow and that they may make disciples themselves. You see, that is the marks of, of maturity. When we're able to take a young believer who we've shared the gospel with, and we are to, to bring them along and to disciple them so that they may go out and they make disciples. We do so that we may present every man perfect or complete mature in Christ Jesus. That's the maturity that, that Paul is speaking of in these scriptures. You see, that's how you make an impact in a, in a school. That's how you make an impact within a community. You win someone to the Lord and then you train them up. Then they are able to go and, and win someone else. And, and while they're winning somebody else, then, then you go win somebody else yourself. And it just keeps going and going and going. And that's taking the church from being added unto... You see, I could go out here and I could preach the gospel and and thousand be saved. But if I didn't disciple them, we've just added to the church. But if I take someone and I show them how they can disciple another individual, they go and they share the gospel and they disciple, then the church begins to multiply. Say, let me let me give you an illustration of how it works and the power of this this multiplication and discipleship. If I had 10 young people that would share the gospel so powerfully so that you could each win 1,000 people to Christ every year for, for Him. Now, that, that, that would be tremendous. I mean, we would look at that and we'd think, what is happening in their lives that they're able to, to win 1,000 people 
to Jesus Christ. That would be great. We'd look at that as a being a revival. Well, if I took 10 and you were able to do that, after one year you would have 10,000 new Christians. After two years, you'd have 20,000. After three years, 30,000. And you keep going. And so after, after 30 years, you would have 300,000 Christians. It would take 100 years to reach 1 million people. That'd be tremendous. But listen to this. If I was to take those 10 youth, and I was to take you and train you how to make one disciple each year, those disciples were trained to, to make one disciple a year. And that disciple was trained to make another disciple. And it just continued and continued and continued. After one year, there would be 20 new disciple makers. After two years, there would be 40 disciple makers. And after three, 80. Now, if you continue to do that, by year 17, you've reached 1,300,000 new disciple makers. After 27 years, you've hit the billion disciple-maker mark. And then after 30 years, you would have reached and have 10,700,000,000 disciple-makers. That's more than the population of the entire planet. But that's how disciple-making and, and the multiplication of disciple-making works. Jesus knew what He was talking about when He gave us the Great Commission, don't you think? He wanted us to reach everyone with His Gospel. And that should be our desire as well. The theme of these two verses tonight is that we might reach everybody, everywhere. That we may warn every man. That we may teach every man. That we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The fields are ripe for the harvest, but we need laborers. Laborers that will go and share and train up disciples. Laborers who have the zeal that Paul did, who will keep going and going and going until everybody everywhere is reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may say, Brian, what if they don't hear? Then you just keep going and going and going. What if they make fun of me? Keep going and going and going because it's better to be a fool in their eyes than in God's eyes. What if I lose some friends, make new friends, and then keep going and going and going, and then go back to those friends because they need to hear about Jesus. Then you might say, what if it gets, hurt, it gets hard? Then you keep going and going and going. What if no one else goes? Then you keep going and going and going. What if I get discouraged? Then keep going and going and going, and then one day you will reap the fruit of your labor. We must keep going. The harvest is ripe. There are people that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. People that need to hear it within your school and within our county. I did a little research about our county. In our county, there are 37,350 people approximately. 55% of our population is non-evangelical. means that they do not believe the way that we do about, about Jesus Christ, that we must put faith in Him in order to be, be saved. I believe that really that, that is a, a low number for Alexander County because 
in Alexander County, if you know how it works, if somebody's been to church one time, they consider themselves evangelical. So, I mean, really, that number could be on up there to, to 75%, to be real honest with you. But if we kept that 55% that said that they, they do not believe that Jesus uh, putting faith in Him is the way to salvation, if we kept that number, out of 37,000 people within our county, 20,544 people would be lost. 20,544 people. If they died right now, they would spend eternity in a place called hell. Out of those who are your age within school, from kindergarten up to 12th grade, if we broke it down to that school age population, 3,150. As I said, it probably is a little bit higher. It could be 4,000. 4,000. 4,000 of your classmates, the ones that you go to, to school with each and every day, the one you have English with, the one you have math with, the one that you have social studies with, those that you spend lunch with, those people, 4,000 of them, if they will die, then they would go and spend eternity in hell. Some of those may be your friends. Some of them may be your family members. Some of them may be your worst enemy. But are you willing for anyone, no matter who they are, to spend eternity in hell? Christ gave us the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and share the good news, my good news. Warn them, caution them, then coach them, train them up so that they may go and make disciples. Every man, every person, everywhere, we must go and share the gospel with. I pray that this school year that you look at yourselves not only as a student, but as a missionary. A missionary for Jesus Christ to share the gospel with those who are around you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, what a challenge we've heard from your scripture. How, how Paul's heart was to reach everybody everywhere. Father, I pray that that would be our desire to reach everybody, every student, every, even every teacher, every family member, every, every person that we come into contact with for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would develop relationships. We'd take time to develop relationships with these individuals so that they may hear from us our, our good news. And then we, that we may, we may pray for them, that you would do the work of salvation. We know it's your work. You just called us to do our part. And our part is just to go and tell tell about you. God, I pray that you would work in, in young people's lives, teenagers' lives, that they may go and to, to share the gospel with, with their friends, their peers. Give us boldness as we go. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.